Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Before we get to Ken Dobson and his new book, Bitten by a Camel, let me tell you about Missions Resource Network. Uh, this is a group of people that work to help disciples make disciples worldwide, and they do this through working with churches and missionaries globally. They connect churches, missionaries, and ministries to each other and walk alongside them all to help mobilize, equip, prepare, and care for them as they engage God's mission. Missions Resource Network is here to provide coaching, preparation for mission, missionary care, and to share learning on almost any question you might have. So if you're interested in learning more about how you can get connected to missions or to be trained or prepared or coached up, go to mrnet.org. That's mrnet.org. Now, on to Kent Dobson, uh, who some of you know from his time when he was a teaching pastor at Mars Hill in Grand Rapids. He's now written a book that has been published by our friend Tony Jones at Fortress Press. Here we go. Welcome back to the show. Today we have on the line with us, Kent Dobson. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, and Kent, you are coming into us from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yep. The uh, the epicenter of forward thought, right? What was the tagline that you guys like to use at Mars Hill? I don't know. The epicenter of progressive culture. Uh. There it is. That's what it is. There it is. And um, yeah, so I've... Like I saw you a second ago, I, I'm excited to talk to you. I've, I've kind of known about you, but I haven't actually got a chance to meet you. So um, let's do this, man. Thanks for uh, coming on. Yeah, I really now, appreciate it. You, uh, this isn't under the book or anything, but you seem like you're uh, like an athletic fellow, sporty guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, how do I answer that? I, uh, I, played, <laughs> I, I, I played soccer in college, so there's that. Well, I, I sat the bench, actually, most of... For four years, um, you, did you go to Liberty? Yeah, I played at Liberty. Yeah, mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, and then uh, since then, I've, I I took like ten years off, so or more. I I I threw my soccer shoes in the trash when I, when I was done the last day. I was like, I was sick of it. I was sick of being in shape, and I I really did nothing. I did absolutely nothing for like ten years, and then I on a whim, I was like, I'm going to start getting into triathlons. So. Um, hmm. that's kind of what I've been doing the last few years. Yeah. How, have you, I'm assuming you've done a few. Yeah. I mean, I just do the short ones. I'm not like an, you know, an iron man kind of material. That's like having a full-time job if you're, yeah. You know. Yeah. I did a relay once yeah. and I just did the swim thing cause I like to swim, but, um, yeah, I can't imagine doing all three pieces. That's, yeah. that's way too much time. It's fun though. The short ones are fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, I don't like the the cycling because I don't trust drivers. I feel like I would get run over. Yeah. No, I, I act- it scares me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, too many phones, too many teenagers. No, thanks. I'm out on that. Yeah. But, um, okay, so you went to Liberty. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you don't have like some Liberty like tattoo on your shoulder or no. like a, no, you didn't get like the branding thing with your <laughs> soccer number on it? <laughs> no, the no. branding. Yeah, it was always confusing what we were because we had a mascot that looked like an eagle, but we were called the flames. So it's like hard to, you know, I guess I could have got a flame, like a flame brand on my hmm. on my arm. No, I, uh, my relationship with Liberty, I mean, I, I actually really, I had a good time. Um, mm-hmm. It was fun being on the soccer team, but it wasn't like, uh, I felt like, 
this is, you know, I'm going to be coming back here for homecomings and things like that. Yeah, for some reason, I don't think you're getting invited to speak there. I don't <laughs> Never. know exactly why. Was the, the flaming, was it like the Flaming Falwells? Was that like the <laughs> nickname for the team or is that, no one, no one went with that one? Yeah, no one went with that one. That, that would be, uh, we tried to get that going, but. Uh, okay. Well, if, the, if they invite you back to speak, pitch them that idea and just say, is it, you don't even say it's mine. You can just pretend like it's your own. All right. I, I think that'd be great. Okay, so you went there. And so here's the weird, um, like the, the weird progression is that I don't know if there is a more geographically centered location for kind of fundamentalism, in my opinion, than like Falwell's world. And that's where you grew up. And obviously you're not there at all right now. And it, so it's a kind of a weird trajectory to go from the book that I read from yours last night to like to end up there from where you started. Yeah. And your dad obviously was a, a key player in Falwell's world and uh, was religious right, is that what it's called? Mm, the moral majority. Yeah, and and the religious right also. Mm-hmm. Were those two like two different gangs, the same gang? Is that like I don't understand the difference. I think the moral majority was um, more of a organizational thing. The religious right is just kind of a general term. And do they all have to be alliterative? I don't know. I don't know what the criteria was. Okay. Well, I read a great book by Stephen Prothrow. Um, something like why liberals always win or something. He's a university of Boston professor and he referenced your dad. And I was like, huh, I, I wonder if that guy's related to you. And I, yeah, it turns out you guys are related. Um, and so in, the, in this book, you have a new book that just came out, and you, have, you seem to have a very like, healthy relationship with your dad. You, you, you have a few moments in which you describe like, after your dad passed and how, like, how meaningful that relationship was. How, how was that? Is that a fair assessment? Did you guys have a healthy relationship, even though your spiritual journey took you a long way away from where you started? You know, well, talk about getting right into um, hard, hard questions. Sorry, man. <laughs> That's okay, yeah. How was your relationship with your dad? Oh, great. I guess we're going there. <laughs> I thought um, it was good. I thought it, wasn't, I thought it was a good, easy question. I guess not. My bad. Um, well, I, I mean, my relationship with my dad was complex. Um, and w- one of the things I've been thinking about, actually, since the book has come out, because a couple people have asked me about this, um, one of the things that maybe it took me a long time to, to see, realize, admit, and embrace is that my dad actually moved in his own journey in a, a surprising way. I mean, he, he, he went from Jerry Falwell land. Um, he left that and evolved and grew in his own way. And in some ways that helped pave the way for my own kind of growth and evolution. In other words, he wasn't always putting on, he wasn't always putting on the brakes, um, or trying to threaten me or scare me out of something. In fact, my relationship with my dad was, um, there was a lot of humor involved. Whenever I would make such kind of big announcements about, I'm not an evangelical anymore or something like that, he just kind of would laugh, which on the one hand was maybe he didn't really want to talk about it. On the other hand, it, it kept things light. Um, and I guess I'm grateful for that. He had a good sense of humor about the religious world and um, he wasn't a Bible thumper and sort of going around threatening people. So I'm really grateful for that. And that, that kept the conversation going between us as I continued to kind of leave the mothership. There's a line about you asking your dad if 
it was a good time to read his book that prognosticated the end of the world in <laughs> yeah. 2000. And he could yeah. laugh about that? Like that's He could. Uh, but he also, he didn't, I don't think he really wanted to d- dig too deep. Like, um, he just kind of would laugh about it and say, I'm bad. Um, <laughs> so, I, um, but he wasn't, you know, I don't think he was threatened by that or deeply offended, at least that, not that I'm aware of. Yeah. So one of the questions I've had come in a handful of times is what do you do when people are on like a spiritual journey that doesn't coincide with the spiritual journey of people close to them, specifically a spouse? I I think in your book, you referenced that your your wife was ahead of you or on the same track with you. So that didn't seem to be an issue in the way I understood the book. But when you have your father, who's such a key player in a drastically different form of religion than where you ended up, that seems like a really, I don't know. It can be a very problematic thing, and it yeah. sound, sounds like somehow y'all navigated that. Well, it's it's problematic, um, and one of the things I try I'm trying to point out in the book is that it's also a major archetypal pattern. If there's not a leaving home of some sort in in a in a grand scheme, um, there's not much change and transformation. So, and and that's what I'm saying. Stories like Jonah, Jesus. Abraham, these are all stories of leaving home base, leaving one's, uh, one's father and the father's household, so to speak. Um, even Jesus sort of leaving whatever version of Judaism his parents espoused. That's definitely the case. So um, I'm not saying it's easy and it just went smooth. No, actually, there's a lot of pain um, because when you leave one worldview in a, in a more obvious way, um, it is a kind of critique, even if I'm not like directly threatening my, my parents or their church or something like that. It's a threat just in saying, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not going mm-hmm. in, in that direction. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- those are the, my story is not that unique. I mean, that's, that's often what it's like. You have to kind of leave yeah. home to grow up, I think. Yeah. Obviously, there's no way to answer this question, but I'm still going to ask it. You grew up in a like the epicenter of fundamentalism, and yeah. you were in in your function as a Bible teacher and obviously as a pastor. Your beliefs are magnified, and you have more pressure put on them. And I'm trying to wonder what happens if if you start not in a religious home and you have the same exploration and how much of where you started affected how, where you ended up or not, you haven't ended up yet. I mean, you're in your thirties, I'm assuming. So no, I'm 40 actually. So. You're 40. Oh, well, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. I, according, according to Jung, I've crossed over, you know, 35 yeah. to 45, you know, that yeah. there's some special thing that happens in that window and, uh, I'm spinning toward death now, which is yeah. fine. Yeah, I turned 36 in nine days, and I feel like now I'm closer to 40 than 30. And yeah, well. I'm going there with you. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Let, so you end up. Uh, so the story is Mars Hill. Rob started at your dad's church. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so did you know you knew Rob early on? I guess. Yeah, I think I met him. Well, he claimed the other day when we were talking that. Um, 
he met me when I was in high school, and I kind of have a vague memory of that. Um, but then when he started working for my dad, I was already in college at the time. And we kind of um, just knew one another in passing. I knew of him, and my dad would talk about him. My dad really liked him and mm-hmm. his kind of create, creative uh, drive and spark. Um, that, so yeah, so that's how I got to know him. And then you end up going along. Are you er- like early part of the church plant? Yeah. Although, um, yeah, so what happened? My dad encouraged Rob to start Mars Hill um, and kind of even encouraged people to leave his own church and go and follow Rob if they liked Rob's teaching. And Hold on, hold on. I Can had, you stop that for a second? Mm-hmm. Not, not many pastors are encouraging people to leave their church to go to another church in town. Yeah, I know. My dad was kind of weird like that. Um, and... And and at the time, Calvary Church, that's the name of my dad's church, was was big. I mean, they, they were running out of room. So it was also a little bit of like they could make room if they could get rid of some people. And also, too, I don't know, my dad, he was less territorial than most pastors are, mm-hmm. um, at least on the surface. I mean, I don't know what he was really thinking beneath that. But on the surface, he just thought it's great, you know, go and start something else. See, see who yeah. shows up. Um, so a lot of people kind of migrated from Calvary, um, right from the start, from the first Sunday. And I had just finished college and I don't know, I I have to be honest. I think part of my attraction to Mars Hill, to Rob was kind of like, maybe I didn't want to miss out on something a little bit of like, maybe I can be a good, a good boy, Christian boy and, um, kind of get involved in this new church and I didn't like the there's a lot of energy like I don't like the old church and so now we're going to do it our way um, and I was kind of a little bit caught up in that and so yeah I was there for on the first Sunday and when, when a few short weeks I was leading the music and then I did that for four years mm-hmm. did the music there yeah. okay and then you go off to get your master's degree mm-hmm. in yeah is yeah, Jerusalem yeah in Jerusalem yeah. Yep. yeah yeah and then you come back and you ended up teaching and then you become the the guy who followed Shane, which were you and Shane there at the same time though? Is that right? Well, um, I was Shane around. Hips, by the way. Yeah, Shane Hepsi. He gets left out of the story a lot because what happened is that Shane got hired when Rob was still around um, as kind of like a co-teacher or mm-hmm. something. And then when Rob said I'm leaving, then Shane decided to go on his own way and not kind of take take the central role. And then that's when I took the yeah. job. Shane's, yeah. been, Shane's been on the podcast a couple times. Okay. Yeah, yeah. so I, I, I like Shane. Good guy. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you're there. Uh, I, I read the book and I read the influences. Merton, obviously Roars, someone you, you referenced a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. What's the conversation at home when dad finds out you're reading Roar or Merton? You know, I don't think I really involved my dad at that point um, too much. Like, um, we would our relationship was largely around the Bible. So he might ask me, we might talk about the Bible. Um, but he was not too interested in, um, these other figures, at least this just didn't come up. Um, I, I, I wasn't bringing, you know, I'm married. I have kids. I wasn't bringing all my existential angst back home to my parents. Um, and you know, trying to get them on in, on my journey. Um, and Israel was really part of the part of the breaking, I think, of the severance that needed to happen. 
which was I moved there. I, and I and that was really the beginning of starting another whole chapter of my life. And now I kind of coming back after Israel, I was kind of like in the church and out of the church. Do I really believe this? Do I really not? I was kind of in and out. Um, but there de- definitely was some severance with my parents and my parents' world. And uh, definitely I was done being a fundamentalist and an evangelical um, after Israel. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So you do that, and a uh, few years later, you resign. And Tony Jones, who's the editor for this book at Fortress Press, um, I don't know if he did or whoever put it out, but the ad they're putting on Facebook is <clears throat> a clip from you in your last sermon at Mars Hill. And I think the tagline is, the day that Kent Dobson fired himself. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you resign, and I remember watching that, um, was it two years ago? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you said that you always felt more comfortable on the edges of Christianity. Yeah. Is that, was that the line you said? Yeah, something like that. I, was, I felt drawn to the edge. I never, I never felt pulled to the center, that's for sure. Okay, can you explain the difference of the center and the edges? Well, I mean, it's a kind of a symbol, I guess. Um, if you were to ask me questions like, um, you know, about orthodoxy and defining, defending, promoting orthodox beliefs and tenets, that conversation has never interested me. And, and I never felt like I had any business defending or promoting the center, and, which makes it hard to be then at the center of a megachurch because people want to know, what do you really believe about X? I, those questions do not interest me. So what interests me are the edges. And the people, the spiritual voices that I started listening to were not voices from the center. They were voices on the very fringes. Even like St. Francis, who like shows up in people's gardens, you know, is a fringe voice within Christianity. And um, yeah, so that's kind of what I mean. So, and, and I saw even Jesus as a figure that certainly doesn't fit in, this, in the center of Orthodox Christianity. That's for sure. Um, he never really said, defended, or promoted anything that would pass as like statements of faith, so to speak, in mm-hmm. churches. Um, so that that's kind of what I meant, and and I felt like myself walking away from the center is was my direction. Was that permission that you learned in Jerusalem? Like, did you always feel that? And like when you were in Israel and you're learning about the questioning and having the the ability to do that. I don't know if you learned that there, but did that give you permission to do that? Or that had been something inside of you the whole time that was doubled down on when you got there? Probably yes to both of those. Um, the, the amazing thing about graduate school is that no question is off limits. I mean, that's what graduate school is. So I felt like more at home questioning basic things like, did Jesus really say this stuff? Or, um, when you start peering into the, what actually happened in terms of church history and, and how, um, how the so-called faith was formed, you're like, oh my God, all right, this is a human mess. Um, but you, I felt free to, to be myself a little bit and ask what questions I wanted to ask. And also my brush with Judaism encouraged that too, because as, as I'm sure you know, Judaism um, loves questions and it just, it doesn't have a problem, um, pulling things apart. And my Jewish professors also, 
I don't know, encourage this. So I guess it was kind of in me, but I did feel a new freedom to doubt. That's what I actually, that's a line from the book. I felt a new freedom to doubt out loud. And, um, now the question was, what was I going to continue that when I got back, mm-hmm. you know, got, got back home and that, that took a while. Um, cause some of it I felt like had to be stuffed down into a black bag. Like I can't let this out. Um, otherwise I'll get fired and, and I won't find a job. And some of that is true. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was, that was a whole nother chapter of, I don't know, trying to reconcile my intuitions, uh, my beliefs, my lack of beliefs, um, and my willpower to be honest with that stuff. It took a while. Yeah, so if Christianity follows a Jewish man named Jesus, uh, who was raised in the Jewish tradition, that encouraged doubting, questioning, debating, how does the religion based on Jesus not have that at the center? What caused that? (laughs) Uh, What caused that is... I don't know. I guess I could speak in generalities. Uh, what caused that is that uh, it became Christendom. It, it, the, they took the structure of the Roman Empire, its religious and political structure, and said this is the way to hold a people group together um, through carefully uh, drawn out structures, laws, programs, um, and in order to do that, we have to attack all of the voices that are contrary to that. So that's the beginning of the heresy hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's largely just the political influences of Rome. I mean, um, and the, the church and politics just got in bed together in the fourth century and um, third, fourth century. And that was the, I think, the real it was kind of a death of this fringe Jewish movement that it started as. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the, the place for uncertainty is uh, it, like, there isn't one as much uh, in Christianity today in the book. You talk about how, well, uh, let me just say one quick thing about that. There is on the edges and that's kind of what yeah. um, even the church, even some of the desert church fathers, you start poking around in, if you get beyond Augustine, <laughs> um, who is interesting in and of, in and of, in and of himself, but um, along the edges of Christianity, you, you had a kind of mystical uh, dimension mm-hmm. to the faith that sort of was the undercurrent, and um, that needs to be said. Um, Christianity isn't one thing, yep. you know, but in its in its most uh, uh, institutionalized sense that you're right. There's not a lot of doubt, room for doubt. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of room for roaming around. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's a, that's a good correction in the institutionalized church. There's not, but I think like you said, uh, there are plenty of pockets in, in the bigger sense of the big C Christianity today that, that does allow that. Um, in the book, you tell a story about when you were at Mars Hill and there was, uh, the discussion about, uh, LGBTQ, gay marriage, how does that function in that local congregation of Marcel? And mm-hmm. you said the eldership was um, took a more conservative take on it. Staff took a more liberal, forgive the use of the words, but I think everyone knows what I mean. And there was hope that you could have a um, kind of a third way in there. But there's a line about biblical certainty didn't help. Um, people wanted a certain answer. You wanted to live in ambiguity of it. Why do you think that didn't work? 
Well, it didn't work for a lot of complex reasons. Um, one of them is that, uh, well, what I meant by biblical certainty is that once we started digging into these passages, there was a kind of clinging to the answers are there. And it's a, it's a matter of correct interpretation. Well, that really doesn't get you anywhere. Um, Why doesn't it get you and anywhere? It's because it's just an interpretation game. And all you can end up saying is, I like my interpretation better than yours. Um, I don't believe there is, you get to the bottom of, I know what Paul meant when he said X. You just, it's endless. Um, and so, it, it, for you know, the clinging to it, almost like a golden calf, like the Bible's going to tell us what to do, didn't work. It didn't work for me because this is, I don't think that's the way the Bible functions. Um, so it didn't work on that level, but also the notion of a third way ended up um, not really working either. Um, we couldn't be honest. Um, and it's hard to say all opinions matter. Like I could be open and affirming and be the lead pastor and, and elders could not be opening and affirming. How is that going to work in the long run? Because it actually comes down to things like policies and practices and um, hiring, you know, would, would you then hire a gay, openly gay, uh, staff person? Well, the answer to that was no. So that's, that's not a third way where all positions are honored. Mm -hmm. Um, and that kind of, I see the nobility in it, the nobility in saying, do we have to be so polarizing? And, um, do we have to draw a line in the sand? Well, maybe not, but, um, it didn't, it just really didn't end up working um it didn't and it didn't work for me it made me uncomfortable being a part of a of, of an institution that couldn't decide um where it stood on how it treats human beings hmm. um and and i guess in the end i felt like i needed to go that wasn't the only issue with with leaving marcel of course but it was a there was a component to that um, I could have blown up Mars Hill in about two seconds on a Sunday morning by just saying, this is, this is where we're going. But I didn't feel like that, that, that was my place um, or my battle to fight. So, hmm. You said uh, in that same section, same chapter, you said that the Bible is a concrete substitute for God. Yeah, I believe How that. How so? For mo- <laughs> Because, um, I don't know, we're in love with words because we believe that that if we get words right, then we'll find a kind of certainty. And that's what biblical fundamentalism promises. That's what evangelicalism promises, that all of our authority rests on these words. And we're going to read them, and they came out of God's mouth, so to speak. Um, and... But it's become a substitute for the divine. We end up bowing down before words, before phrases and verses, and and not to the mystery of God to which those verses point, um, or sometimes not point. Sometimes they don't point to the mystery of God. Um, but it makes sense because in a world where there's so much uncertainty and um, so much ambiguity, it's just, it's very natural to say we've, we want to hold this thing in our hand and, um, and we end up bowing down before it. 
It's just so funny because Jesus didn't have a New Testament. Paul never heard of a New Testament. He wasn't trying to get into it when he was writing his letters, mm-hmm. you know. Even the whole notion of a canon was not really, there wasn't even such a thing. There was a high view of the Torah and Judaism in Jesus' day, but um, it was it was much more about the story of a, of a people's relationship with what they were calling God and not, not the, that the words needed to be, you know, bowed down before mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I think, I think it has become a concrete substitute for the mystery of God. So how do you, how do you give some, something to people to say, this is where you go. This is who you are. This is how, this is what is the navigational system for your life. This is the, the direction that you have. What do you point people to if it's not a sense that you know, this Bible gives you every answer and it's God's roadmap for your life? Well, I mean, I think you can actually do a better service to the Bible by saying, here are a series of maps that teach us what it's like to be human. Um, and maps are not the same thing as the terrain itself. So same with even what we would call like the truths of Christianity. They, they function like maps. Here's a little glimpse of what you might find in the complexity of life. Um, you go to the church fathers, you go outside Christianity altogether, and there are lots of voices and lots of maps. Um, but that's pretty much all you can expect from them. They, they say, when you find yourself in the train of life, you can say, well, apparently this is a little like this. <laughs> this is a little like what, um, mm-hmm. what Sarah went through. This is a little like what, um, I don't know, Jesus went through. This is, a, I feel a little like Peter. So I would argue for what I call in the book uh, a mythopoetic reading of the biblical text, um, mm-hmm. which is what I think it is anyway. Um, that's, the, that's where its source of power is. But it really then functions as a mirror, like this, the stories and the power of the stories mirror back to you something that you're able to recognize in your own life. But it's not an answer book. It's not 10 steps to finding the divine, divine or... Mm-hmm getting to go to heaven or um, a lot of that is just rooted in a kind of natural existential uncertainty and fundamentalism has come along and said, we can stamp all that out by, by saying it's a, it's an answer book for all of life's questions and problems. And if you get it all right, you'll get to go to heaven with, with Jesus and chill for a while after life or, you know, after death. So. Yeah. My, I think my favorite section in the book is you talked about the patterns Mm -hmm. And let me read this section, um, because you wrote it, you need to hear it again, <laughs> as if you haven't read it. Okay, you said the patterns are spiritually true, which is another way of saying actually true. Mm. You say, like Abraham, we leave home. Like Jacob, we wrestle with God. Like Sarah, we are barren. Like Joseph, we are betrayed. Like David, we sleep with our neighbor and cover it up. Like Ruth, we realize we're God's daughter, even though biblical religion has left us out. Like Isaiah, we have a vision of reality. Let me abbreviate this like samson we're blinded like elijah we find god in the whisper like jonah we run from god like jesus we die and are resurrected i like that's a beautiful picture of what how scripture can point us somewhere and and, and, like you said be maps or obviously not terrain but they're maps i I, I thought that was great like i really really like what you did with that so well done (laughs) thanks did you come up with that all by yourself? I did. Well, no. How does anybody come up with anything all by themselves? You know, I like. Yeah, yeah. There are a whole world of influences 
some of them of are course. conscious and a lot of them are unconscious. Yeah, yeah. I I have a friend who asked me something I'm working on. He said, "Did you come up with this?" I was like, "I mean, I've said it so many times. I think I did, but I really, I really don't know." Okay, can we let's let's jump back to preaching. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, you have a line uh, in the book. We're talking about this is the early part of the book. You're telling your story, and the line is, "Preaching requires occasional bending of the truth." Yeah. And you talked about you didn't always believe what you were saying. Do you think the sort of sort of like journey that you were on, the the struggle, the wrestling you were going through, is indicative of all of that sort of conviction that you have to occasionally bend the truth, or do you think that's everyone who's in the pulpit at some point is doing that? Uh, I'm not sure. It's definitely been true in my own story. And when I say bending of the truth, I I don't exactly mean an outright lie. I mean it's almost like. You're trying to get close to something, but you're not sure if you can, um, close to the truth. Or you have an intuition that, that the, the truth might be slightly more, slightly, or just around the next bend, but I can't quite say it. I can't quite get there. Um, but I definitely think it's true in general that I think preachers, all of them, probably politicians too, they can't say what's true. And some of that is that they don't know, quite know what's true. Um, and so the bending of it often is like, I'm going to throw you a few bones that you recognize here. Like, don't worry, I'm not a heretic. Um, and then maybe you, you're, you're, you're trying to find your way um, mm-hmm. on a slightly different path at the same time. Over time, though, that became intolerable for me. And um, I, I was trying to make a commitment to not say anything that wasn't true, which is way harder than it sounds. Because you might say something and later on you'd be like, actually, you know, no, that's some other voice in my head um, that wants to be liked, that wants to uh, please people, that um, wants to be seen as the spiritual answer man. That's actually not true for me. Um, it's, it's like you, you come back, you have to have a lot of compassion, I guess, on yourself because you're going to say it poorly and you're going to say things that are not true. Um, but but the, I think for me, it was like a journey of coming back. All right, is this true again? Is this true? I don't remember what it was. Brene Brown um, had this like these five questions. And one time I taped them up on my wall in my office. And I can't even remember them right now. But w- one of them was like something like, is it true? Is it helpful? What part of me... Um, is saying this and am I saying this because I need to be liked or, you know, she was kind of like probing around in this territory. Really, she's talking about being authentic and being authentic is not the same thing as just waking up one morning and saying, today's the day I'm going to be authentic. It's a, it's a wrestling match and yeah, yeah, but a worthy one. And, and you probably know when you listen to people, preachers who preachers and teachers who really are on the path of wanting to say something true and authentic, you can smell it. You can sniff it out. And when they're not, it's like, ugh, so icky. Um, hmm. Yeah. Do you think, uh, okay, do you, ever, do you see yourself ever in the preaching role again in the future? Uh, Could you? Probably, um, it depends on what, what you mean. Um, maybe for a spiritual community that wasn't rooted in... Um, doctrines and beliefs, uh, Christian doctrines and beliefs needing to Mm -hmm. defend or promote those because I like, 
I like public teaching. It's something I enjoy. Um, and it, it's probably a necessary, it's kind of like a cultural art form that's, um, still has legs to it, but, um, so, so if you're doing that again at some point mm -hmm. in the right community, do you feel like you will, um, be under the same pressure to bend the truth there that you felt before? No. Uh, Well, I, I shouldn't say that with such certainty because, um, I think anytime you say yes to a community, especially yes to a community that pays your bills, how are you going to get away from that? You know, yeah. it's, it's very hard. Like Oscar Wilde says, um, never underestimate man's ability to misunderstand the truth when his paycheck depends upon it. Mm-hmm. So that's why politicians are just notorious liars because their paycheck depends upon it. Yeah. And, so anyway, I, it, but it's a worthy struggle. So if I find myself in that role again, I'm sure I'll bump up against it. Um, but I feel like I've already been through the fires of evangelicalism and it's in a big institution, a big mega church with its $4 million budget um, and, you know, whatever. And um, I found my way out of that. So um, I hope I could stand up with um, a deeper sense of authenticity. So you went through you know, deconstruction of a lot of things. You talk about your view of the Bible, your view of the afterlife. Um, you talked about um, uh, original sin. Like, there are a couple of different things that you have entire chapters developed to, mm-hmm. or in the book. And so there's a deconstruction of some of the fundamental tenets of those ideas, beliefs. And you even had this... Um, warning up front where you say that the warning about, oh, don't follow this person, they're on the slippery slope. You say, I'm actually at the very bottom of the slippery slope. So you've, you've torn down, the, you've done the deconstruction. How would you describe a, a reconstructed faith according to Kent Dobson? What's your like elevator pitch for this is what faith, the belief in the divine, Jesus, it, it's all about? <laughs> oh, man, I don't know. Um you know, I try at the very end of the book, I talk a bit about what I call the spirituality of the ordinary. And so for me, the image of I'm going to climb the mountain of faith and get the right beliefs and the right practices and get all my orthodox ducks in a row. And at the very top, I'll meet God. I am saying that journey doesn't work. It didn't work for me. And, and perhaps what's true about faith is that as necessary as that is, you get to a point where you have to let that stuff go and you have to, to lighten the load and you have to drop your beliefs. So that, that puts me more into the, the more mystical camp, meaning writers like the cloud of unknowing who, who says the first step on the second journey of faith, he doesn't say second, I'm adding that, but um, is to forget, forget everything that you've learned up to this point. And, I guess I'm, I'm saying, yeah, that's part of the, quote, reconstructed faith is actually moving into this cloud of forgetfulness and um, unlearning and unknowing all of our, our initial images of God. And what's born on the other side of that? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but our images of the divine um, get dismantled um, and, and some of them are not coming back. Like I can no longer believe in a being up there in the clouds or just beyond space or something who sits on a throne. Um, 
so what what's put in its place that whatever we mean by the divine is found in the ordinary in reality with a capital r um and i'm not the only one hold on a second my thing messed up you're good okay i'm not the only one saying things like that um and and actually there's a rich spiritual tradition on the underside um Mm -hmm. of christianity and i don't know so um the divine is found in the ordinary. The uh, God is reality with a capital R. Um, uh, there are different spiritual paths. What do they have in common? They have in common the first putting together of the self and then the dismantling of the self. And both of those matter. Mm-hmm. Um, the, v- the very moment you think your life is together and you're a preacher and you got a mega church and you quote, know what you believe. Um, it's time now to fall down off that mountain. And that's what I think the, the great spiritual teachers have all been saying. Um, that's the death of the egoic persona, if you want to use contemporary psychological language. That's the spiritual path to growing up. And why do we need it? Because our world is run by spiritual junior hires or worse, um, a bunch of bullies on a playground. We need adults. Um, but we have to be in the process of growing up ourselves. Um, yeah, so that's, that's not really an elevator pitch. That's the problem with a book like mine. It doesn't fit into five steps to spiritual freedom. You know, I'm yeah, saying let's, let's take a ride down the slippery slope and see what we discover at the very bottom in the ashes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good. Well, it's a good book. Uh, well written. I, um, you had a metaphor about um, a camel going through the, uh, or not the camel, but like there was a checkpoint that you had to go through and each time security seemed to increase. And so every time you went through that, there was less and less stuff that you brought through, which yeah. I think that's a, a metaphor people keep going back to. I, I don't know if you read much uh, Barbara Brown Taylor, but she talks about how early on her faith was like this big chest of ideas she held on to, but now it's gotten whittled down to now it's just a little shoebox. You remember that quote? I don't, but I really resonate with, that image. That's, that's what I'm saying. Definitely. Like crossing the border, I had to take less and less stuff. I had to mm-hmm. not bring a backpack. I had to travel light. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the chest has to be unloaded um, and whittled down to a shoebox. And um, I guess I'm saying that's just part of the natural process. And if, and if you expand out from that, why are so many people becoming increasingly uncomfortable with Christianity with institutional Christianity, with church life, it's because the the, the chest has become too heavy, and um, the bag is too heavy. The what the camel is too loaded up with, you know, all kinds of shit, and it's and it's time to lighten the load. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good, man. Well done on the book. Thanks. Good talking with you. Um, yeah, well done. So. Um, People need to go buy the book. I got one more question for you, though. Yeah. I've got a buddy of mine from my church who uh, he's uh, he's got kids going off. His last kid's going off to college. He's like, I really want to go to Jerusalem, get a master's degree, and study the Bible. You recommend that or not? <laughs> what, what should he do? Well, um, it, Jerusalem is an amazing place to study because um, it puts you in the middle of of the 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 
of religions, psycho-spiritual upheaval, like Islam, Judaism, Christianity, world politics, America, um, Islamic fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism, Jewish fundamentalism, and it's also a super secular place. Um, so that is like a pressure cooker. So mm-hmm. in, in addition to just what you might learn in classes, um, it's a lovely place if you want all of your ideas to be to implode. So mm-hmm. if that's what your friend is interested in, then yeah, go for it. If he wants his ideas to be propped up, then maybe you should go to a, a local seminary, you know? <laughs> Out as someone who went to a local seminary, um, who's at a church that has a million dollar budget, multi-million dollar budget. I appreciate you destroying everything that I build my life upon. So thank you <laughs> for that. Kid. <laughs> and when you say mega church, what is the uh, cutoff for that? Like what is the size that determines? I don't know. What do you think? I've always wondered about that. I, it, it's like the line about, um, is there a house that's too big? And you go, yeah, well, yeah the, the one that's like a thousand square feet bigger than mine. Like I, that's what I think about mega churches. They just come, anyway. I have no idea. Yeah. But probably the definition is when you look out there, if you're teaching and you look out there and you don't recognize most of the people, then that's probably a mega church. All right. We're going to edit that part out. Um, right. <laughs> no, I recognize. Anyway, we're going to end this before I get in trouble. Ken, good stuff, man. Thanks. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.